You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it, and uh, people listen. I'm glad about that. I don't know where to go for from whatever here. reason. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, we're we're glad to be here. We're uh, kind of getting into 2022. Um, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, <laughs> we're there. We made it, which is crazy because uh, who would have ever thunk? that we would have done this this long uh, with a podcast. So especially with all the craziness we've had to get through to get here with COVID and all that good stuff. And yeah, yeah, this, uh, this is, I believe episode 170. So we're, we're getting up there. We're going to be a 200 before too long. It's wild. It's wild. And we still have people listening. It's like, and people who've hung around, which is just crazy. Yeah. We've, we've got a great uh, group of listeners. Um, We really do appreciate you guys out there and supporting us in whatever way, shape, or form you have, <laughs> whether it be messages or uh, through sharing the, the show or, or any of that stuff, all of it is very much appreciated. And um, it kind well, of blows I, my mind that people are are into what we're doing here sometimes. So. I, I actually am starting to get messages from people saying, I'm listening to it again. I started over and I'm listening to it hmm. again. And so I thought that's pretty cool because well, not just once are they subjecting themselves to this. Yeah, well, sorry about those early episodes. Um, I feel like we should leave them there, but they're they're a little rocky at the beginning. We kind of had to catch had our to get stride. Our sea legs, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, and hopefully we'll you know stay awake uh, <laughs> through this one because we got a new puppy yesterday because I decided that you know we needed more chaos in this house and. Uh, Anyway, I've, I've actually thought about naming him Chaos, but I don't know if that's an appropriate name or not. Yeah, probably um, not so much. It's, yeah. So um, anyway, so if you hear some whimpering in the background, it's because he's just been here like 12 hours and still adjusting. So it, It's the puppy, yeah. not the family members. Oh, right. Not a child. They have locked in a cage somewhere. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, even the puppy gets a babysitter because our sister is going to be making sure he's not locked in a cage somewhere either. So, you know, our pets are spoiled well, in case y'all haven't picked up on that on Facebook yet. Yeah. Well, if, if you, um, you know, my, I'm of the opinion, if you can't spend time with an animal, you shouldn't have one. Yeah. You know, that's just, well, dad kind of drilled that into our heads. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, well, that being said, um, that's the brief version of news, but we got a, some other things to talk about last week. We, uh, ended I don't even remember where we ended. Emily, will you catch us up? Uh, yeah, well, uh, Shiva had decided to rebel against David. He's run to Abel Beth Maka, and we talked about some of the discoveries in the archaeological dig, and, uh, you know, who this wise woman, who, it, who she might be when she shows up to tell Joab, hey, look, don't do this. We've got it covered. And um, she uh, basically diverts an entire civil war because, I mean, it keeps it from getting larger anyway because she takes a stand. And I got to really thinking about the fact that there's this woman showing up, which we should not be surprised there's a woman showing up. Uh, it's almost every time David has something go wrong or needs a last-minute rescue, it's interesting it's a woman who shows up to save him. And it's often a woman who either has a title of wise or she is described as being wise. Uh, and so, you know, David's uh, reign has a lot to, uh, a big debt to the women who are with him. And it got me thinking about uh, the last civil war that we had faced, the last major civil war where the tribe of Benjamin was almost wiped out. And that was back in Judges. And I went back and I started looking at some of the language and seeing how the two stories might play off of each other because I didn't find any other commentators that, um, that linked this. But I think if you remember that Judges and Samuel should flow one right into the other. And I believe it's Dr. Vance who says that 
he, he believes that Judges and Samuel were, were both written by the same person. And so the, the stories go together, and that last big story in Judges is where we've got the Levite and the concubine. And, the, you know, I'm not going to go into detail on that story. I'm just going to trust that, you know, if you're really interested, you'll go back and read, or maybe you'll go back and listen to those episodes, which I actually, those are some episodes I think we, I'm really proud of. I think we addressed some stuff that mm-hmm. needed to be addressed. But I wanted to pick up some of the key phrases from both the story with Joab and the wise woman and the Levite and the concubine and show you how I see them playing together. So, and if I'm off base, correct me, uh, I probably won't like it for the first few minutes, but I'll, I'll get there. So, uh, you know, but in both stories, we have uh, a man from the hill country of Ephraim, and that's in Judges 19.1 and in 2 Samuel 20.20. 20. And it's interesting because when the writer Samuel introduced uh, Shiva, it wasn't, um, he was introduced as a Benjaminite, not as a man from the hill country from Ephraim, but that's what Joab calls him when he's talking to this woman. So he changes his description there. Um, there are the, uh, the villains in each account are worthless men or Benabalial, uh, uh, the, the sons of Pleal. Mm-hmm. That, so we've got that connection. That's in Judges 19.22 and in Samuel 21. Uh, negotiations play a prominent part in both stories. Uh, the old man negotiates with, this, with the uh, men of the city in Judges 19.23, and here the wise woman negotiates with Joab and then goes back and negotiates or commands the men of the city to do her bidding. And we saw that. We talked about how interesting it was this woman in a society that we're told women have no voice, women have no place, is actually going to the second highest, you know, highest man in, in, um, in all of Israel. And saying, this is what you need to do. And she's telling him, listen with the intent to obey. Shmoo, shmoo, shmoo. So, um, but in that, we also have this reversal because we have that reversal of the old man versus the old woman. And then we have this, the men of the city ignoring the old man where the men of the city do listen to the old woman or, and the wise woman. And we also have this, this theme of battering or beating. The, the men of the city beat on the door of the old man's house where Joab is beating on the walls of the city in his siege. And the uh, concubine is thrown out of the house where Shiva's head is thrown over the wall. And we got to remember that the concubine was also dismembered and cut up just like Shiva's head had been cut off. And so, um, you know, you've got some really, I think, some good themes that show you these stories should play off each other. I don't think we have, oh, well, you know, they've got just a few words in common. We've, we've got some words in common, which is important, but never forget the themes are more important mm-hmm. because word studies alone are going to lead you astray. I know they've been real popular in Bible studies, but if you're not looking at the context and the themes, word studies can get you completely off track. So I, I do see some themes within these stories, but one of the huge things is in both stories, the women are nameless. Neither woman has a name. And they're only known by their title or their role. So we have the concubine or the wise woman. And, you know, these are two diametrically opposed roles within that society. And so a concubine is a woman who is married. She is a wife, but she is not of enough status or importance to demand that that marital contract that a, a wife would have, where the wise woman is somebody that is a spiritual and or a political leader. And we talked about that last week. And, you know, the, the concubine, go ahead. I was going to say it, it, and it's, it's frustrating that we take this woman out of the the place of honor when we're reading the story, Mm -hmm. because there, I mean, I, I literally based on what I've heard from a lot of, a lot of, uh, very conservative, um, (laughs) podcaster preachers that they would they would say that well that's basically the same thing you know a woman in leadership and <laughs> is no better than than a concubine or and it's like it's because they're because they're not in their rightful place or something mm-hmm. like that it's i I've, I've heard these critiques and and some of the things that i have heard pastors supposed pastors say <laughs> on podcast about women 
who are teachers or writers, mm-hmm. it's it's quite frankly appalling. Uh, I, there, there's rebellion. no excuse. We're Jezebels. I mean, I, a friend of mine threatened to get me like a a, a bingo card <laughs> for all the different names that men can come up with to call women who dare to teach on the Bible. Um, you know, and I don't see any place in the Bible where there's an exclusion for sharing the gospel. There's an exclusion for sharing the word. You know, the Great Commission is not gender specific. Right. And so, you know, and, and I'm not even going to get into the pastoring of a church debate. That's a, that's a different topic. And right. so the, the fact that we have men saying that women should not use their voices contradicts everything we're seeing in so many stories. Mm-hmm. And when you go back, and I love that principle that we talked about, um, I can't remember what episode, where it, you don't, this is a rabbinic principle, but it's a good principle, I think. You don't enact the law unless you have two stories demonstrating how to enact the law. And so whenever you look for ways to enact, you know, women be silent or, you know, women, as if not a woman to teach, where are those enacted in scripture? How are those scriptures played out? Are, are they played out with literal silence? I mean, we contextualize that away so much and we say, oh, well, you know, that's just, you know, because uh, women were yelling back and forth and we still want women in choir. We still want women to sing. We want them there making coffee and what have you. So, you know, hey, it's good to just act like that part doesn't exist. But then, you know, we, we, aren't stopping to look at the stories. And if you do offer a story and everybody always goes to Deborah, oh, well, she's just an indictment against men. No, she's not. No, she's not. Uh, you, you cannot get that from the scripture. Right. So, well, I'm, not, I'm not often blocked on Twitter, um, <laughs> but it, it, I actually got in a discussion. Somebody said something about uh, the Bible. It said something about Barack was supposed to be doing the job the job that Deborah was doing. And I asked him, I said, can you show me chapter and verse where the Bible mm-hmm. says that? And they came back mm-hmm. with something that was completely unrelated. Mm-hmm. And I said, you still haven't answered my question. I would like you to show me where in the passage it says Barack was supposed to be doing Deborah's job. And they say, and there was something like, well, it said he was to lead the army. It says, no, Deborah called him to lead the army, but it doesn't mm-hmm. say anything about him supposed to be the appointed judge. The, the judge or the prophet. Yeah. I mean, none of those. Yeah. <laughs> and they blocked me just because I kept putting out, like, you cannot show me at mm-hmm. all where it's there. So, yeah. But so, go listen I- to our judges up the episode <laughs> series if you want to catch up right. on that. Well, and so in this situation where we've got the story where this wise woman has baffled so many commentators and they just want to act like, okay, she just happened to be some old grandma who stepped out there and, you know, no offense, grandmas, grandmas are great. I am one. Um, but the, you know, she just happened to step up and say something. No, she had a role. She had a specific function. We, we were talking about how archaeology has backed that up and that's so cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a great email, and I should have looked at the name again. I'm horrible with names. My puppy still doesn't even have a name. That's how bad I am with names. Um, but I'm worse with people names. And so a great email uh, talking about how uh, she had heard a uh, lecture referring to the same ones. And I, I love when listeners send us stuff like that. But in this particular story with Joab and the wise woman, Contrary to the concubine who never speaks in, you know, the concubine never utters a single sound. She, she lives and she dies in silence. This woman has a voice. And not only does she speak on her own behalf, she speaks on behalf of an entire city. And, you know, she, she has got some power. She knows the power of her words. She's willing to use them. And she subverts David's greatest fear. Because when David heard that Shiva was revolting, what did he say? He can do us more damage than Absalom. We can't let him get into a fortified city because he's going to disappear. And so what we see overall, the overarching, is where this voiceless woman in the concubine, she actually becomes the reason why Israel is thrown into a civil war, where the woman in um, Abel actually stops a civil war by using her voice. And, you know, and I, th- I think that's a huge story. And I, I think there's a, a 
major lesson to learn there because this is the importance of women speaking up when they know what the right thing is. Mm-hmm. When, and so often we're told we can't do that. Yeah. Well, and I think there's also kind of a, a lesson there of dealing with, uh, dealing with things externally and dealing with things internally. You know, the, the concubine was pushed out into the public square mm-hmm. and the, and then she was dismembered and put on public display. And then, uh, uh, Sheba, his, you know, he was killed inside the walls. And the yes. problem was taken care of inside the city. Mm-hmm. And one of them uh, starts a war. One of them stops a war. Exactly. It's, yeah. It, 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 this is so rich when you put all the pieces together. And, you know, there's even more we bring to the puzzle. Because if you remember back after that, that concubine was killed, Hannah protest all of the corruption, all of the um, evils that were being, that were happening at Shiloh. We talked about how Hannah and the concubine were basically, you know, they were probably related and they, they may have even known each other. And, you know, Hannah in her protest, that's whenever she's praying for Samuel. And we talk about how Samuel isn't just a woman wanting a child. She, she is saying, I'm here as a woman. This is what I can do. Mm-hmm. I, I can give birth to a child who can fix things. And so even Hannah is using her voice. But um, after Samuel's born, she prophesies. And this is in 1 Samuel 2.8. And this is, uh, I'll just read it. It says, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make, make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of the faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. So, you know, when we remember Hannah's story, and we remember the story of of Samuel's conception and birth, and realize that that's the confirmation that God heard her prayer, this corruption, this violence has to stop, the abuse of women has to stop. And her prophecy is that this is going to be enacted through the Messiah. And so several times throughout this, this study through the book of Samuel, we have pointed out how David has failed. Mm-hmm. David's just completely missed the mark. He screwed up as a king. How in the world could he be God's anointed? But then this story shows us another glimmer. And I think this is what we need to remember, that yes, there's all these stories of failure and all these stories of ways that things have gone wrong, that David's made the wrong choices. It's still better. There's still an improvement. If he is a foreshadowing of the Messiah, there's got to be some of this positive stuff within David's reign. And one of the positive things is that a woman from the city can call out to a prince or, you know, one of the more powerful men in in Jerusalem or Israel and talk to him. She can inherit a seat of honor in the city and her enemies, this mighty man is going to be cut off. I mean, like his head literally gets cut off. Does it, now, do I think that's what Hannah was specifically referring to? No, but that's the beautiful thing about prophecy. It often fits various scenarios uh, far, more, uh, far more accurately than we first suppose they might. And so I think that this, this story really becomes the glimmer of hope. It, it, it's that little shining moment where you see, you know, if it can be this good, for women under David, how much better whenever it's the Messiah, when it is Christ. And because in this story, Hannah's words are, are realized. I mean, they're, they're starting to play out. Women have been lifted out of a place of mourning. Uh, they have inherited that seat of honor. And, you know, she's speaking and she's being heard by the most influential man in Israel. And so this woman, a faithful one, that's who she declared herself to be. She said, I am one of those faithful ones that, that Hannah talked about. It is protected. And so, um, you know, when we realize that this man, Shiva, is literally doing what David fears the most, and that this woman is the one who puts a stop to it, that really changes how we read the story. And I think where so often people are baffled by it, suddenly all of it makes sense. And, you know, yes, David rule falls short in comparison to what Christ is going to do, but it's still more than what it was. 
And, you know, David was never supposed to fulfill the totality of that role of Messiah. He is just a foreshadowing. He is a type. You know, he's supposed to give us glimpses of what could be. And so in that, he does succeed because he does give us these glimpses. And I think the biggest glimpse for me through the story so far has been this particular episode. And, you know, it, it's really interesting that in David's reign, women do regain their voices. You know, because Hannah was a, a, an outlier. She was not the norm. She was the outsider. And so she, when she stood up and, and spoke, number one, women didn't do that. They didn't go to the temple or the tabernacle and pray at that point in time. Number two, they did, nobody prayed in that manner. And then we also know in Hannah's time that the vision of the Lord was rare. Since David, the one that Hannah had prophesied about, has taken the throne, now we have prophets again. Now women are being heard. They're speaking to important men. They're shaping politics. They're shaping, shaping policy. Yes, there's still a lot of abuse going on, but it's not what it was. They're not being gang raped by entire cities and cut up into pieces and sent all over the nation. That's a major improvement. So, um, and it's, you know, we need to realize that it's only later as the nation falls back into idolatry, as they begin to move away from God's intended purpose, that women begin to lose their voices once again. And so during the Torah, during Genesis, in Exodus, women play a huge role. During Joshua, during Judges, you know, we see women kind of fade out. Then when the Messiah is reigning, we see the women elevated again. And then as the city, as the nation and country begin to decline in their, their moral and ethical values, now we begin to see women fade again. And you can see this clearly demonstrated in the scriptures. So, um, you know, it's very fitting that this is um, this is the final story in what's known as the succession narrative. This is the final story where David is he's on his throne, he's reigning, he has control of the entire country again. The country's backing him. There is no no outside threat. There's no inside threat left to dethrone him. He he is the king, and so um, you know we've got this this conclusion where David's finally getting it right. Mm. And the people are finally experiencing the, the nation of Israel as God is intending it to, intended it to be at least on some levels. And yes, to us, there can still be horrible things, but once again, you've got to go back to judges. You've got to look at that time when every man did what was right in their own eyes and how that impacted the lives of so many. And the impact was we've got, you know, hundreds of women being kidnapped, carried off from their homes. We have an entire tribe almost wiped out. And all of this is happening. Why? Because God's anointed was not on his throne. So um, the David's, under David's rule, women a lot of times are still nameless, but, you know, they're no longer voiceless. And, you know, they're no longer at the mercy of worthless men. Worthless men are actually at the mercy of wise women. And I, I think that's a nice little twist there that we can, mm -hmm. uh, you know, th that's huge. This woman is celebrated. And so, uh, you know, defenseless women are no longer thrown out into the streets. And now we have, you know, the worthless men being thrown over the walls, the mighty men. Um, and so we've closed this, this circle with this account. And, you know, if we attempted to try to find some kind of starting point for this within David's life, not within the whole nation of Israel, but within David's life, uh, we find another circle being closed with this account, too, because we'd have to go back to chapter 11. And that's when David's walking on the roof and he sees Bathsheba. And, you know, we, we all know the story. David sends for her. Uh, she gets pregnant. He tries to cover it up. Uh, he has Uriah killed. Uh, again, you can go back and listen to our episodes on this. And we got to remember, Joab is the one who carried out the command. Joab's the one who made sure that Uriah died. And mm -hmm. whenever that happened, you know, he didn't question it. He, he didn't wonder what was happening. And he's on the battlefield. So we don't have any reason to think that he knew what had happened back at the castle. All he knows is that Uriah brings him this message, kill me. Uh, mm -hmm. So 
And when Joab has Uriah killed during battle, he sends a message back to David. And you remember what the message said? The message said, who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubasheth? Now that's um, another name for Gideon. But did not a woman cast an upper millstone from, on him from the wall so that he di died in the bez? So in other words, even kings can die if they get too close to a wall because Abimelech was the guy who proclaimed himself to be king of Israel. Mm -hmm. So Joab seems to, to justify the deaths of David's soldiers uh, with this message. But we also know that there's a dual meaning. Joab may not have known what he was saying there. And we talked about this too, but um, David had hurt himself by getting too close to that wall on the roof, by looking over places where he shouldn't. And so now we have a woman behind a wall who becomes the one who will save David in the kingdom. So we have a nice little reversal there. And we have this reversal of the events with Bathsheba and all that followed from that point. I mean, so uh, it's, a, it's a rather staggering thought that when women are valued and they're honored instead of just being treated as a sex object, um, they have the ability to, to actually change the history of a nation. And, you know, and it, it really begs the, the question, because we have one more wise woman to look at, uh, what would have happened if David had listened to the wise woman of Tekoa? And, you know, the wise woman of Tekoa was the one that Joab went to. And it's interesting that Joab's in the middle of all these events with women, too. Um, he went to her and said, hey, I need your help. I need you to go talk to the king. He's going to listen to you more than he's going to listen to me. Absalom needs to come home. So he basically gives her the spiel that she's supposed to present to the king. And, you know, but she's smart enough to know how to deliver it right. Mm -hmm. She's wise enough to know how to deliver it right. And she very obliquely refers to um, Absalom as the heritage of the Lord. And that's the same phrase that this wise woman at Abel, Beth Maka, she uh, refers to the city. It's the heritage of the, lo the Lord. And if you remember that scenario, David only did part of what the wise woman told, her to, uh, told him to do. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. He brings Absalom back, but he brings him back to the city. He doesn't return him to the home. Uh, he didn't greet him as a father. I mean, this is not the prodigal son. This is not the dad running out to meet the son. This is the son who has to burn down Joab's field to get dad to even acknowledge that he's alive. Right. And, and then when he gets there, he gets that, that you know, very um, ritual kiss of a king. It's not the, the embrace of a father. And, you know, that, that kiss and embrace theme played such a big part through the rest of the, the story. And, uh, but you have to wonder what if David had listened to her? What if Absalom had been returned home? What if he'd been restored to his position as a son? Could all of this have been avoided? And so I, I'm beginning to think that one of the overlooked messages in David's story is listen to the women who are trying to help you. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I know I think that's just like radical in so many <laughs> circles today. Yeah. Well, and earlier you mentioned when, when things are going, when things go well, when women are listened to, uh, are you thinking that's more of just an, uh, it's not so much a formula of if you listen to women, things will go well. <laughs> right. It's, um, because I don't, I don't want people to think that that's what we're doing. Cause so much of, right. so, so often so much of, of the Bible and Christianity gets kind of knocked down into these little formulaic things, but uh, I just want to, you're, what you're saying is that it's kind of an outflowing of, if you're doing what you're supposed to do, you're going to treat all of God's people who are made in his image, male and female, right. uh, man and woman made in his Genesis image. Genesis 127. <laughs> yeah. That you're going to treat them like people. And that's, yeah. it, which is, and I know I don't get too far off on this, but you know, just, there's so much with, uh, you know, I didn't plan on talking about this today, but there's, there's just so, so much bad advice in the world. And particularly, I don't think we're, we're having necessarily big issues. At least I'm not. I, one of the big topics right now is a lot of really bad marriage books. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we're not the marriage podcast with it's, right. you know, we might do some shows on it at some point. But one of the things that really uh, is frustrating to me is the way that a lot of, a lot of these 
a lot of the advice given makes things mm-hmm. very transactional. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. it's like you're not looking at the person you're living with as though they're a person. You're looking at them as right. though they're someone providing you goods for services or you know. And we have a word uh, for that. And uh. <laughs> and I just I'm very frustrated uh with that. And and here we see uh I think with what you're talking about is that's not the way it's supposed to be when the right yeah. king is reigning and people are are doing what they're supposed to do, then mm-hmm. everyone gets treated with dignity and respect. Right. Because so often what winds up happening is oh, women were deceived. Women are over emotional. Women can't be trusted. Women don't have the right to teach. You know, Adam got in trouble because he listened to his wife. And yet we have all of these stories showing that, yes, Adam got in trouble for listening to his wife. But how many times did somebody else in the Bible get in trouble for listening to a man? It, it, it's not so much that women have some kind of special corner on the market of, of wisdom. I'm, I'm not saying that. I, what I am saying is, is that whenever we're treating people correctly and we're living according to the, the, the standards that God has set for us, we don't discount people who are trying to help us. We don't harm people who want good for us. And we don't act like somebody's you know, wisdom is less than just because they're a different sex. Mm-hmm. And so we, we need to, to be paying attention to how we're viewing people. And are we, are we discounting someone just because they don't look like us or they, they don't have the right body parts? I mean, that, that's ridiculous because that's nowhere in God's word that you should do that. And so I, I'm really frustrated that, you know, it's just, I, I see so many posts about if you have a women pastor or a woman, woman teacher, then you're in rebellion. Uh, I would never listen to a woman teacher. I would, I mean, I'm sure that none of those people who post those things are listening to our podcast because that would be hypocritical. Right. Oh, wait, I know a couple are, but anyway, uh, I won't name names. Uh, so, but yeah, well, and, and what's frustrating for me on that point is that a lot of those people uh, seem to spend most of their time so concerned with the, what's going to displease God. They don't ever think about the possibility that God might actually delight in his children. Um, yeah. You know, well, I should move on. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get wound up on that. Well, it's just, we've seen a lot of it. And by the way, if you want a really great resource and she is not associated with us in any uh, way, shape or form, we just really love her work. We've mentioned her before. Um, It's to love, honor and vacuum. You can find her on Facebook. Uh, I believe the podcast is Bear Marriage Mm -hmm. and um, Sheila. And I always say the last name wrong. You can say it. Sheila Gregoire. Okay. It's not that. So I, I know, but words get stuck. And once they get loaded in wrong. I can't unload them. So, um, but yeah, I, so she's got some really great things. She's, she's done reviews on these books. She's exposed what has, is hurtful and what can really do damage and what is a, a very biased message where women's needs and even, you, you know, like their, their needs, I mean, not just their wants, but their needs are being neglected. So, um, but anyway, Let's get back to the notes. So if we look back at this, and this all began with the prophecy of Hannah, and we accept that David's the type and foreshadowing of Jesus, then David's story is going to be incomplete without these women. Because if we look ahead, Luke emphasizes the role of Mary and Elizabeth in the announcement of Jesus' impending um, birth. Uh, Mary echoes Hannah's song in the Magnificat. The, the Magnificat. Sorry, I always say that wrong. See, those words. words. Magnificat. Somebody said it wrong to me. Yeah, somebody said it wrong to me once upon a time, and that's how it got stuck in. Um, the shepherds, we overlook the point about the shepherds. Who were shepherds in the Bible who were specifically named as shepherds that's in the Old Testament? Rachel, Zipporah, probably Leah and Be- uh, Rebecca, um, and also the Shulamite in Song of Songs. These were the shepherds. They, they are women. They aren't just men. These are young boys. These are women. That, so... When the birth announcement arrives, it's not coming to a bunch of men on the hillside. It's coming to this mixture of men, women, boys, young girls. They're all hearing this. And then Jesus' arrival at the temple it, it is celebrated by a prophetess whose name is Anna. Or if we want to put the 
breathing more back onto the Greek that we do, we tend to drop in English, Hanna, it's the same name. And that's just the beginning. And, you know, we're going to look at how all these women play a part in Jesus' ministry when we get to the Gospels. And so, you know, Jesus wasn't reliant on women to give him good advice. Okay, let's be clear about that. that. I'm not saying that. But he did not turn away and he did not act disgusted in the least bit whenever a woman did support and a woman did help and a woman did want to learn from him. He accepted them. He, he made them part of what he was doing. And, you know, his life and his ministry included so many women. And Luke really brings that out. And so I can't, I can't wait to get to that because that's going to be a lot of fun to, to talk about. So, so the story here, it, 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 it wraps up from Judges forward. It wraps up from Bathsheba forward. But then it also points us ahead because that's what the Bible stories are supposed to do. They're supposed to give us that moment in the past. They're supposed to redefine how we think about things that happened so that we don't get stuck in little static boxes that can't be changed and we can't come up with those formulaic pronouncements and boil it down into some kind of cliche. And so we can look forward into what God is going to do. So now moving on, now that we spend enough time talking about the women in, in um, the last part of this chapter, we have a list and this list very closely mirrors a list that was found in second Samuel eight, 16 through 18. And these, these lists kind of bookend, I, I think alters the one who used that phrase, bookend David's rule in Jerusalem, specifically in Jerusalem. And so um, they're very close. There are some differences, and Alter calls them destructive. So I'm not going to read through these verses, but I am going to talk about each name and the significance of it, because uh, it is kind of interesting what's in this little list. And you don't often find things interesting in a list, list forming. Right. But, well, it's kind of <laughs> so. like going back, and if you actually look at the story of, of like Jesus' genealogy, and you look at everyone who's included there, you really see a huge amount of importance to what's being said. And, and it's not just a begat, begat, begat. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not there's, just, there's... it's just not, not just knowing the relatives for the sake of knowing the relatives. And moving on. So Joab is the commander of the, the, the army of Israel. Only this time he's the commander of all the army of Israel. Uh, not just over the army. Uh, so we, we have this elevation. It, it's, it's not a huge distinction, but it's, it's enough before he was just over the army. And it verifies that Joab has been successful in basically taking back the job from Amasa, that, that David isn't going to go, what did you do? Get out of here. Or having killed, David's actually going to, to let him stay. And so now he's David's general. He's David's right-hand man officially once again. But this time, there's a little more oomph behind that title and position. Mm -hmm. So uh, Benaniah, son of, uh, I should not have written this down, Jehod, uh, the commander of the Cherethites and the uh, Perethites, Peleothites, uh, listed um, second to the last in chapter eight. They claim the second spot in this list. And he is on David's personal body. Uh, sorry, this is David's personal bodyguard, this group of people. So basically, David's personal safety has now been moved up a notch. It, it's something that he's having to make provision for. It's something that's more important now. It's not, you know, the days of living on the run and going into Saul's camp and stealing a spear and, you know, none of that. That's out. David's king. He has to be protected. So the bodyguards are way more important now. Um, Adoram, which was in charge of forced labor. Now, this person in his position's not on that list back in chapter eight. Um, this guy will play an important role in, in uh, Solomon's building projects. And Alter says that he's included here in anticipation of the forced labor that Solomon will use. Now, Zamora says that he's included here because forced labor is something that is found in the later part of David's reign that David is the one who institutes this and that Solomon just builds and expands what David had already set in place. And so thus, 
David also fulfills the prophecy of Samuel, who warns, you get a king, all he's going to do is take, take, take. And so once again, we see that, yeah, David's not immune to the same temptations that face Saul that wound up corrupting Saul's reign. Our question is, can David overcome and can he change course? And of course, we've already seen that with Bathsheba, where when he is confronted, he knows it's a sin. What's he say? Yeah, I'm guilty. So um, Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, I love these names. Um, he's the recorder. So now what's funny is about good old Jehoshaphat, this kind of cracked me up, is then the two lists uh, of David's officials, and there's a third list with Solomon's official, his name appears in all three. So he's the recorder. He's the guy writing this stuff down, <laughs> right? Okay, so he makes sure that he's on there. Now the next guy in the list, this is where it gets even better, Shiva is the secretary in chapter eight. Now. Um, I'm sorry. Now the, there's a difference in the name, but there is. Oh my gosh! So I don't want to get too far afield with this. The the question is: Is it the same person with a different name? But in Solomon's list, okay. So in chapter eight, it's Syria. In Solomon's list, it's Shisha. Here it's Shiva, and everybody, all the commentators believe this is the same guy. Okay. And that he's just got his name misspelled three different lists. So the recorder gets his name right in all three, his own name right in all three lists. The secretary, who is closer to the king, but he keeps, you know, he does things like writes the king's letters, takes care of the king's correspondence. He's not making public documents. And it seems like the recorder is making sure that when there are these public documents out, there's a, you know, a little misspelling. Of the guy who's closer to the king. You think there might be any jealousy there? I, 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 I'm thinking, you know, I'm reading into this, but it does crack me up that, um, you know, get the same guy and evidently the recorder, the guy who's writing this list all three times is the same guy. And so it, something hinky is going on here. And I think I would bet there's a little professional rivalry that, uh, yeah, the recorder wanted to be closer to the king uh, like the secretary was. Mm -hmm. So um, I find it humorous. I could be out of line. But anyway, uh, then we have Zadok and Abathar. And, you know, they're, they were priests under David. We've, we've seen them uh, specifically when uh, Absalom had invaded um, Jerusalem. They help make sure that... Um, David got out of the city that he could get messages to to and from the city and his commanders. And uh, now we're really unclear as to why they're named here, what, what, why their names are on the list be, in this way, because, I mean, there's other priests. Mm -hmm. Being a priest in Israel was not a simple job. When you've got everybody bringing these sacrifices in, and you've got, you know, thousands of people bringing in animals that need to be killed, I don't know if our listeners have ever butchered a cow. That's not a, a simple process. Right. It takes a little bit. We've been involved in that. So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you know, the other priests remain unnamed. These guys, they get included on the list and it's, it might be because they have served David with a lot of devotion. They have taken risk on his behalf. So maybe it's just, you know, kind of a, a you know, let's be polite and honor them by including them. But then we have this other guy, Ira the Jerite, who was also David's priest. Now, Ira, Ira is new to the list and replaces David's son as his personal priest, because back in chapter 8, David's sons were his priests. And there's a lot of speculation about why David would have replaced his sons as his priest. Um, you know, uh, some speculate that, you know, it was too much like other nations that the kings would often appoint their sons to be, to be priests. And, you know, obviously David's family, they're from the tribe of Judah. They're not from the tribe of Levi. So there's some problems. He uh, could be trying to stop some jealousy between the priestly houses and the, the royal house. Um, and so he decided to respect the tribal delineations. Uh possibly could have wanted to avoid the mistakes that we saw with Samuel and Eli when they tried to elevate their sons to the position of priest when they shouldn't have been. Yeah. Um, I tend to lean towards the simplest answer, 
his sons are busy killing each other and everybody else. So they are not qualified to be priest. David knows he can't trust them to be priest. Well, that that was my first thought was, you know, after all that business with Absalom, I think it's time to move on to some more qualified people. Yeah, I mean, it's like, come on, guys, think about this. I mean, we just had David's sons lose their minds, and evidently they just kind of scattered when Absalom came into the city. They They aren't, you know, they're either unworthy, they're too young, or they're dead. So, so why are we we um, trying to figure this out in a more complicated manner than it um, than it needs to be? So, I just it, there's a lot in this chapter that just kind of opens up the David story in ways that I had never considered and never heard taught before. And I'm like, why aren't we teaching about these wise women? Why aren't we teaching about the ways that they impacted David's rule and reign? Uh, why are we only talking about the mighty men? Uh, so I, I, I love the fact that the writer was very intentional about including these women. Now, this concludes what I said earlier is the succession narrative. Uh, what follows is... An epilogue, uh, Bergen calls it an aside. Uh, we have this uh, last four chapters in this book. Um, they're not in chronological order. And that's not to say there isn't an order. Uh, but there is a, basically, there's a sense that here's all these stories that have significance and meaning and you need to know. But they really didn't fit within this very tightly constructive narrative that came before in the book of Samuel. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, these, these stories that we're going to look at and we're going to get some, some crazy stuff because some things happen in these stories that, well, we were told to believe didn't happen in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And we're going to use the word contradiction. Mm -hmm. <gasps> so uh, we're going to talk about the contradictions. Um, and we're going to talk about how we can get to some some kind of um, resolution, or if we can, because sometimes I don't think there is a real pretty package to put it in with a pretty little bow. Um, this is this whole section has a lot of debate surrounding it. Uh, there's some debate as whether it was just kind of stuck on as an afterthought, and if it has little to nothing to do with what came before, or if it actually is tied to what happened. Um, we do know that there is, there is purpose and intent with the way this, these four um, chapters go together because they do form a chiasm. Uh, so you know, you've got to remember back, we talked about this. I believe it was with Ishmael and Isaac and that, those episodes. Um, that's where the beginning and the end mirror each other. And then the second event and the second to the last event mirror each other and you continue inward until you get to that central point and that central point is uh or central story is the most significant thing about these passages mm -hmm. and so uh, in these chapters what we have basically is a famine and death and this is when the the death of saul and the death i'm sorry death of saul's sons and grandsons that is the result of the famine and that's going to mirror the census and God's anger over the census. And so those two stories are going to go together. And again, that's the first story and the last story. Then the second story is the Philistine War. And then in the, the second to last story is, is David's heroes, David's mighty men. And then in the middle, we have two songs. We have the Song of David, which is also uh, found in the Book of Psalms. And then we have the last words of David, which are written as a psalm. So the, the central, the core of this passage are those psalms. And um, because we have these mirrored passages that are meant to play off of each other, and they're supposed to inform how we read each other, I think it's going to be good to take this part of Samuel a little out of order. So um, we're going to look at basically the first story in Samuel 21 and then we're going to go over 24 and we're going to pick up that last story and we're going to put it together and we're going to look and see what looking at them together shows us. 
Mm-hmm. And so we'll start from the outside and work our way in with this. And uh, I haven't gone through it. I haven't got all my notes together. So we're going to hope <laughs> that this works out well. Basically, we're winging it here like we normally do. But you know, Well, and if it, it doesn't work out, we change course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, now, because these events are not in chronological order, there's a lot of debate surrounding when does this happen. Um, We've got a real interesting uh, array of timelines here. Um, a lot of people believe that this opens with events that happen very early in David's reign. Actually, uh, Zamora suggests that it could have happened even before David was king. And um, Bergen places it somewhere after Mephibosheth uh, arrives in David's court. Mephibosheth is going to be a major player in this particular story where, that we're getting into as far as. Um, this chapter. Then he says it had to happen before Absalom's rebellion. So he kind of narrows the the time frame. And so uh, we'll just start on the, the first one because we got a few minutes to to fill in so we don't have a short episode. But Second Samuel 21 one says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and his house because he put the Gibeonite to death. So we just went through all of 1 Samuel, almost all of 2 Samuel. There's no mention, one of a famine, and we are never told when Saul put the Gibeonites to death. This is a good example of what we're looking at, stuff that's not in the rest of the book, and we don't know what to do with it because there's just no real answer. Um. Alter sees an immediate shift in writing styles. And, you know, Alter's really good at seeing these things. And so I always appreciate what he has to say. But he says that uh, basically when verse one says David sought the face of the Lord, this is a big tip off that we're not talking about the same writer as the rest of the book. Because always before the writer of Samuel said that David would inquire or whoever they were mm-hmm. talking about would inquire of the Lord. So we have a shift in language. I don't know if that's enough to say that we're looking at a different writer. I think that's going to be something that we're just going to have to work through and try to figure out if that fits. Um, functionally, the two phrases mean essentially the same thing, but the um, there, there's a difference in the connotation. To to inquire of the Lord carries more of kind of an oracle aspect. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're looking at the the wise woman in the city from the story we just got done with. And so you're asking for guidance. You're asking for wisdom and how to proceed in the matter. Seeking the face of the Lord has a more hierarchical kind of um, sense to it, that this is an underling saying, I need to get the attention of someone who's over me. Um, You know, how do I get noticed by a superior? Mm -hmm. Now. So, yeah, there's some differences, but there's also some, there's a lot of overlap. So I don't know if we can really say, hey, this is what's going on, that we've got a whole new writer here. I'm not saying that we can't. So I, 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 don't, I don't know. Uh, but then we're told there's a famine. Now, in the book of Samuel, rain is a... Is it's the medium through which God expresses His pleasure, His displeasure, His wrath, His judgment. Mm-hmm. It, it's it, it's through rain. Withholding the rain, or even having rain fall at the wrong time, can actually indicate that God is upset about something. And so, uh, it's pretty much as good as or better than any prophetic judge uh, pronouncement, because everybody in the nation gets the same message. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to be at the courts. You don't have to go to the, uh, to the hill country. You don't have to seek out somebody. You can sit in your front yard and know God's not happy. So David seeks the Lord, and, and he, he's seeking specifically within the idea, the hope that he can understand why this is happening. That's, that's what's going on here. He, he, there's a famine. He doesn't know why it's happening. And honestly, God answer creates a lot of questions for us mm-hmm. and so we can begin to see why that timing aspect is so important because if david 
is king? Why is he dealing with Saul's mess? And um, I guess I didn't put the, um, yeah, I did read the, I did read God's answer earlier. Anyway, God uh, has said, you know, this is blood guilt on Saul's house because he killed the Gibeonites. So why is David trying to clean up Saul's mess? If he isn't king, why is he dealing with national matters already? Uh, why did Saul kill the Gibeonites? That would be a good thing to know. Uh, why did this bring blood guilt on Saul's house? I mean, especially when you remember Saul had killed all the priests at Nov. And so why didn't that bring blood guilt on Saul's house? Why the Gibeonites? Mm-hmm. Um, who were the Gibeonites that would cause not only Saul to want to kill them, but for God to respond this way? And honestly, nothing in the book of Samuel anywhere gives you a great answer to the story, to those questions. Right. We're going to get a few hints as we move forward, and we'll look at what those are. Um, the, the most likely answer on our foundation for moving into this will be in Joshua 9. This is after Jericho has fallen, after Ai has fallen, and you know, basically all the Canaanite um, nations say, "Hey, you know, we cannot stand against this nation of Israel and their God alone. We need to, we need to get together." And so all of them unite. We get a whole little list there in Joshua nine that I'm not going to read through, but there's one exception, and that's the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites, they, I mean, they're clever. They get their worn-out saddles. They get the worn-out sacks and shoes and clothes, and they they get dry, crumbly bread, and you know the wine skins are cracked. And they load it all up, and they go out and they meet the Israelites, and they're basically, "We've been traveling forever. Uh, you know, we've come from such a long way away. See how worn out all our gear is, and all of our provisions, you know, are, are dried out." So uh, we're new here. Do you think we could stay in this conspicuously empty city? <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Well, and, and that's the thing. They left the city behind, and the Israelites, because they're new, they didn't know that the city was there. And so they're like, okay, new guys. God didn't tell us to kill the new guys. He said, just kill the guys who've been here forever. And so, yeah, we'll make a treaty and a pact with you. This is great. We, we can be pals, right? And then just a few days later, um, Israel figures out that, oh, they've been played, that the Gibeonites actually are from Israel. They're not travelers. They're their neighbors. And it's really interesting to note, and I think it, it, I hadn't noticed this when I read it before, the, the text actually makes a point to say that they looked at the evidence, but they did not ask the counsel of the Lord. And I'm like, oh, well, there's a warning if you ever heard one. Mm. And so anyway, but the people of Israel said, you know, we've been played. We don't like being taken full. So let's just let's kill them. Besides that, God said we were supposed to kill these people anyway, back in Deuteronomy. And uh, but Joshua's like, no, we, we made an oath with these people. We, we invoked God's name and we made a promise in his name that we would not kill them. We can't kill them because we're not going to break this oath. And um, what he did do is he invoked a penalty because he could do that because all great leaders find loopholes. And anyway, the, um, the penalty is that these Gibeonites would now have to carry wood and water for the tabernacle. So water for cleaning things up, wood for burning the, the, the sacrifices. And this is their job and presumably right up through the reign of Saul. And so we've got this group of people who are living within Israel who are not Israelites, but they've been there for a while. And we're going to talk about why that's important. And um, basically uh, how this could have determined and influenced why Saul might decide to kill them. And, Anyway, the story is going to get a little bit more interesting from here, but that's a good background. So I think that's a good place to put a semicolon and wait for next week. Yeah, well, I I definitely have questions about this passage. (laughs) A lot of questions about this passage. So I'm I'm hoping we can get some of those answered. 
And uh, I'm still doing research, like fast and furiously trying to answer some of these questions well, before we get too far. <laughs> I'm telling you, there's there's some some really interesting things in here that hopefully everyone kind of picked up on is going, this doesn't make any sense at all. Um, <laughs> especially when you look at the culture that they're supposed to be countering. So yeah. anyhow, that being said, I'll let everyone think about that and we will pick up next week. Um, if you want to be part of the conversation, hit us up on Raven Creek SC on all the social media. Ravencreeksc.com is the website. And if you really like what we're doing um, and you want to help us out, one of the best things you can do is write us a review, give us a rating, share it with a friend. Those are things that make the biggest impact. And uh, we are excited to still be doing this and would like to continue yeah. for some time. But uh, all that being said, um, Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes, or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us next week.